Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 182nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Richard Joyner. Richard is a wealth manager and the president of Tolleson Wealth Management, a multifamily office based in Dallas, Texas, that oversees nearly $6.5 billion of assets under management for just 180 affluent families. What's unique about Richard, though, is the way he's developed Tolleson to serve ultra-high net worth clientele with a, a breadth of private wealth management services that truly goes beyond the traditional financial planning approach. In this podcast, we talk in depth about what Tolleson actually does for clients who have an average family net worth of tens of millions of dollars. From a deeper level of client financial management and support, including bill paying services and family spending reports, to advanced tax and estate planning services that delve into techniques that can produce seven-figure estate tax savings, private banking services to help clients obtain loans and receive corporate trustee services, and why arguably the biggest value Tolleson provides their clients is supporting their family learning and helping affluent parents conduct family meetings to develop their children and grandchildren to become responsible stewards of the wealth legacy they will someday inherit. We also talk about the business of multifamily office, private wealth management itself, the composition of the 180 staff members that Tolleson employs to support its 180 client families, the combination of flat fees and AUM fees that Tolleson charges its ultra-high net worth clients, how the firm justifies what can amount to $150,000 a year or more in advisory fees, and why despite having a heavy component of AUM fees for clients with tens of millions of dollars, that Tolleson has chosen to outsource most of its investment management and serve as a manager of managers instead. And be certain to listen to the end, where Richard shares the policies that he's had to put in place to train and develop next-generation talent in the firm to be able to manage such ultra-high net worth clients, the combination of structured learning through designations like CPWA and internal mentoring the firm uses to balance technical and interpersonal skills development, and how Richard managed to balance his own workload and commitments to serve as the president of a multifamily office with 180 employees and still maintain a client-facing role for himself as well. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Richard Joyner. Welcome, Richard Joyner, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. I'm, I'm really looking forward to today's discussion around the, the world of multifamily offices. I know this is a, a world you lived in, you have lived in for several decades now with with an advisory firm of, of many billion dollars under management for at least relative to some other firms, like not necessarily a huge number of clients, just a, a few hundred clients with many hundreds of millions of dollars each. You know, we, we, and I think we talk about financial planning and wealth management, but these have sort of become loose labels that mean different things to different people. And, and like, I, I sort of, I know intuitively, like, what you do for people with $200 million is different than what I do for clients with $2 million. I feel like we never really talk about like, what is, what is financial planning wealth management look like when, when you work with the, with clients that have 
tens of millions of dollars or even hundreds of millions of dollars or, or, or even moving up from there. And just what, it, what does it mean to do wealth management with those kinds of clients compared to the, the rest of the world of what we do in financial planning? So it's a great question. I'll, I'll tell you out of the gate that for me, it's just been a fabulous experience. I've been doing this a long time. And it's one I, I can't imagine doing anything other than what I'm doing right now. Working with these large families with significant assets, to me, to me, the, the big point of distinction is that the wealth is generally multi-generational. So for me, there's, there's no real science to that term other than to say that the wealth is significant enough that it will have an impact on several generations. And that, that frames a lot of the thought process for many of the things that we do. But in general, I would say that the, the, the process of working with families like this is very much the same as working with any family. It's, it's more an issue of scale. And then when you, when you bring in the multi-generational component, you're still doing financial planning. You're still doing investment management. You're still doing estate planning and tax planning. You're still doing all those things. But it takes on a different dimension when you're bringing several generations into the planning process. And often, often a big part of the process is actually working with, communicating with, and facilitating conversation with members of those multiple generations at the same time. So it's, whereas it might focus on more of the wealth creator or executive in another world, in this case, the family unit is the unit that we pay attention to. And, and that really does drive a lot of what we do. Interesting. So I, I feel like a lot of us, talk about we're multi-generational like i have several clients where the clients passed away and now i work with their kids and they inherited the you know the million dollars in dad's eight hundred thousand dollar ira i feel like a lot of firms have, have sort of tried to go down the family tree in in working with more than one generation of the family when someone passes away if 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 only just to literally be able to hold on to the client dollars and and family relationship but uh, like I, I feel like what you're talking about is different than what the rest of us talk about when we say like, well, yeah, like I've done a meeting with the client's kids so they get to to know us. And like, you know, I, I once did an educational series for the our clients, younger kids to orient them about money. Like what is what is multi-generational planning really mean in your world as as distinct from what 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 the rest of us may do to try to have some relationship with you know, kids or grandkids of clients? Probably the easiest way to understand it is to talk a little bit about the services in particular. So um, we're, our firm is organized as a bank holding company. And within, within the bank, we have a small um, state charter bank, um, but we also have trust, we offer trust services. So we can serve as a corporate trustee and often do serve as a corporate trustee for a family. So when we serve as a corporate trustee for a, for a significant multi-generational family, that drives the need to be involved with more than one generation almost from the beginning of the relationship. Because typically in a situation like that, you're not only involved with the grantor, the original creator and funder of the trust, but you're often work, working with more than one generation, generation two or three, helping them plan for how to work with a trust, how to determine how much they can afford for housing, how much they can expect to receive in trust distributions, how to integrate trust distributions into the rest of their financial lives. 
how to understand some of the technical elements of a generation skipping trust. And so it, I think it's probably as much as anything more a matter of depth and more a matter of how, how much you're involved with multiple generations of the family from early in the relationship. It, it definitely changes things. Interesting. So, so the context for, for you and in getting involved in, in families might, might be, you know, a patriarch of family has set up, you know, whatever, a $50 million trust or, or even a larger number that's going to go to, you know, three children who are young adults right now. And your firm may literally be the corporate trustee on this and has to actually communicate to them like, so you're the beneficiary of $50 million trust. It does not mean you actually get to spend $50 million right now. <laughs> so let's talk about what that actually means and how trust distributions work and what you can expect from this and how you actually live your life when you've got this asset that's going to put some money out to you, but it doesn't always happen or it's not guaranteed or the dollars may fluctuate and there's this other money, but you may not get it later or it may only go to your grandchildren and let's help you figure out like how do you how do you actually live your life? I think some people sort of joke like I was going to say first world problems, but like you know I'm the beneficiary of a fifty million dollar trust is even kind of above first world problems. Uh, but like but but they're real problems, right? If if you if you're someone who built a business and built that wealth and spent all that time and effort building it up, like the last thing you want to do is see it get blown or wasted or lost. So, you know, you know, some controversies around judgments of wealth aside, just for people that have that kind of wealth, this is a really, really major issue and fear and concern is how do I make sure my wealth lasts and has the impact in my family that I want to have, which means someone's got to help me make sure that my kids handle this properly because I didn't grow up with this wealth unless, you know, you're already a second generation inheritor. Like if I was the wealth creator, I didn't grow up with wealth. I don't know necessarily how to help my help my family, help my kids, help future generations do this quote right. So, you know, can you guys help me figure this out? How do how do we actually do this right? Absolutely. And it's really it's kind of interesting. Um, when you're dealing with a family situation like the one you've described, most parents will make the assumption that kids will react to learning of a trust for their benefit, like they've won the lottery. Woohoo! My life is going to be great. In reality, sometimes it's exactly the opposite. A child that learns they're a beneficiary of a trust is concerned about not screwing things up or not overspending or being responsible, not disappointing a parent. And so it, it can be a very, very difficult process for somebody that is, that is just learning about something like this for the first time. And it, and it does take preparation. Often the skills that it takes to build that kind of wealth don't necessarily appear in every single generation. And the skills it takes to maintain it are not necessarily the same as the skills to build it. But that's the famous shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. <laughs> yes, it's, and, it, and it plays out every day. I think the challenge for the families like that is to, is to recognize that kind of phenomenon, but more importantly, to figure out if there's anything that you either want to or can do to, to change the trajectory. And it's a, it's a pretty involved process and it's, it's one that requires a very different time horizon. You know, we talk about long-term time horizon in a lot of contexts, but for this purpose, 
teaching skills and training and getting experience for these kind of life skills. You can be talking more than a few years. You can be talking in some cases a decade or more. A decade or more of like, how am I, how am I going to help develop my clients? Be 26 year old child who may be inheriting $20 million to be a responsible, productive adult, not, you know, not fulfill at least all of those media images we create of, of trust fund babies who are irresponsible and blow the money and do, do all sorts of, have all sorts of unfortunate behaviors. How long is it going to take us to actually help develop that person into a productive adult who stewards the money and not a unproductive adult who blows the money? Exactly. And and often with families like this, even if there is a, a lot of financial wealth, there's often an operating business involved as well. So at some point, there's a transition issue, a succession issue within the business. And then all of the issues that come around with managing significant chunks of wealth. And most of the time, it's not one person making all the decisions after the first generation. So you bring into the into the equation the fact that you're having to learn the skills of making decisions together with either siblings or sometimes more difficult with cousins and multiple family branches. And so the, the complexity of just the, the learning process and the things that, that have to occur for a family to continue operating successfully in that kind of environment, it's really, there's a lot to it. It's, very, uh, it's a very interesting process and one that takes time. And so this is, I guess, part of your point around the the fundamental difference is the multi is is the depth of the multi generational aspects of like no we're really in there with kids with a relationship that could be years or a decade or more because we're trying to help prepare the family for transitioning the family business to the next generation or perhaps even more challenging transitioning the family business to not be led by the next generation and not have the family melt down when the kids find out that they're not actually going to get to run dad's business in the future or how do we make sure if they're going to inherit tens of millions of dollars they don't end out like trust fund babies that have other dysfunctions that come with it like how do we actually make sure they turn out to be productive young adults and and the firm is literally trying to play a role in those kinds of development dynamics. Correct. And so it, it shifts it shifts the focus in my mind. Often in the planning world, we're focused on designing a plan. In our world, it's it's got to be design and execution of the plan. And execution or implementation of the plan takes place over a longer period of time. So whether the process includes meetings with family members multiple times a year or whether it's only one touch point a year, whether, you know, how much of the focus is on learning, how much of the focus is on making operating decisions together, it takes, um, it really does change the focus of the work so that it's much more about execution and implementation over longer periods of time. With, I, with, I guess, the big star, the big asterisk, like we, we've all dealt with clients where, you know, I... <laughs> I did the analysis and crafted the planning recommendations, but doggone it, they they didn't do them. They went off in their own squirrely direction. That you know, you know, for for some of us, like that may just be a reality of of life, or depending on our model, like we may not, we may just be on the planning advice side and not necessarily on the implementation side. It's like you know, my, my role is to give the advice. That's ultimately their decision about what to the, whether to follow it. You live in a world where, hey, if we're doing this on a long term multi generational end, like it's it's not enough to say, well, I, I gave the family the recommendations and they they didn't implement them or they went some weird direction because of those screwy family personalities. Like 
you have to actually be in there and deal with those screwy family personalities and figure out like, here's the real human beings on the ground. Okay, now how are we actually going to get them to implement this plan? Well said. You said it exactly right. So help us understand, like, what is a, I don't know if there is a typical, like, what what is a typical family profile look like? Like, if we just, as we continue this conversation, we're trying to put in our heads the, you know, like the the quintessential Richard Joyner multifamily office private wealth client. Like, can you can you paint a picture for us of what that what that looks like? Sure. A typical client, um, let's see, a typical client has has often built, developed a business, sold the business, either entirely or in part. Uh, the, the family, the family that owns it is uh, typically for us is typically multi-generational. It's, you know, it's often the case that we're working with families that are, that have kids in their, in their early twenties and that type of age. So there's, they're going to be getting married and having kids and they're going to be having their own uh, families and starting their own families at some point. But often when, when we start the relationship that hasn't occurred. And, and I guess part of that's just natural age function, like founder made business in 20, you know, in 20s or early 30s, built business for 20 years, has, is now in their 50s, has had a liquidity event, and their kids are probably in their 20s, because just that's how the ages line up for that, that sequence. I think that's exactly right. Okay. Typical family for us has a lot of, of complexity, whether it's existing complexity or it's just the the complexity of having the wealth that is so significant. When you have that degree of wealth, there are obviously a lot more, there are a lot more issues that come up. There are a lot more opportunities that come up, whether it's in the estate planning context and you're dealing with planning for multi-generational trusts or whether it's because you have a $50 million liquid portfolio, you have more opportunities to allocate to direct investments, to private equity, to things like that, to things that may not necessarily fit for every single client. And so there's, there's just a lot more, there's a lot more opportunities. There's a lot more issues that come up. And so we consequently find ourselves in situations where the family has a lot of technical complexity. There's a lot of different entities, entities that have been created either through the business operations or because of the planning strategies and the things that you're trying to implement over time. Um, so a lot more of our focus seems to be around planning structures and executing those structures successfully to get the benefits that the client really uh, was attempting to, uh, to t- obtain. So it's a bigger, it seems to be a family. It tends to be more complex. It tends to have uh, assets in many different buckets. Uh, so for us, a client, uh, uh, retirement planning and planning for retirement accounts, for example, is often not as significant an issue as it is in other in other types of clients, uh, because most of the assets come from different places, and it's much more common for us to be planning around trusts than it is IRAs, for example. So it's just a different it's a set, different set of issues and, and opportunities. And and is there a typical I guess other like liquid portfolio or or total net worth as we're trying to vision what this client situation looks like? Sure, I would say I would say the average client is probably thirty million dollar portfolio, and probably similar amount in other types of assets. Uh, so thirty million dollars in business interests, in real estate, 
in other types of non-liquid investments. So typical net worth is probably um, 70, 70 to seventy-five million dollars, with about half of it liquid and half non-liquid. Okay, so I, I yeah, Carter sort of makes the point in that context. Like we're we are not in a can I afford retirement realm. We're not in a well, you know, a, a $30 million portfolio at a 4% withdrawal rate would be $1.2 million a year, about $100,000 a month. Like we're going to, we're going to start you there and then we'll adjust for inflation every year. Like that's, that's not really the conversation at this point. Like, uh, got more than enough wealth to live our lifestyle. Well, I guess that's something to check. Cause I'm sure you've got a few that still managed to outspend that, but for a lot, I would, I would presume like there's more than enough dollars to cover our lifestyle even if I'm doing retirement planning, this is less what can I afford in retirement and more of like, of my $70 million, how much do I need to earmark to check the retirement box? Because I've got three other businesses I want to start and I need to know how much money I'm allowed to invest in them without screwing up the rest of my retirement. Right. It becomes much more a conversation about goals. What is it specifically you want this money to do? Uh, Is it there to create a legacy for the next generation within your family? Is it there to fund future phil- or current or future philanthropic goals? Or are you investing in the next business? Are you a serial entrepreneur and investing in several businesses? If you're a serial entrepreneur, how much do you need to set aside to make sure that you maintain the lifestyle that you're comfortable with? And therefore, then how much do you have to invest in the next business? How much can you afford uh, to be not to be illiquid for the next ten years, so you're you're making you're having a much more focused conversation around specific goals, not so much about running out of money, but much more about the choices that you're making along the way and how they all fit together. That's an interesting frame. You just sort of, I feel like you you surfaced up three kind of high level goals. Like this may be a a family legacy thing, sort of planned down the family tree. This may be externally giving oriented, right? About current or future philanthropy, or this is essentially a reinvestment discussion. Like my, my goal with my wealth is to continue to compound and maximize it, or just, I want to deploy the dollars in a way where I can have the personal impact while I'm here on this earth. So I want to make the next business entity, the next endeavor, and that you split these up into sort of, there's the giving clients. I mean, this may be overgeneralizing, but like there's the giving clients, there's the family legacy clients, and there's the serial businesses kinds of clients. Is that a fair way to frame it? That's a very fair way to frame it. And each of them has uh, significantly different issues. So so now help us understand from the, from the business perspective, what does this look like? Like when you're in a, in a typical client engagement, what, what does that mean? What are you doing for these clients in practice when we talk about goals and uh, private equity investment opportunities and serial businesses and and managing trusts and, and family members that have to be responsible inheritors, are you trying to develop them to be responsible inheritors? Like, What does this mean in practice in how you actually execute and deliver services in a, in a client engagement? So the way I bucket or think about those services Investment management is always a significant component of the things that we do, and you know that that's fairly common and pretty well understood. I think the the second sort of big bucket of services is what I would call financial management in general, and so a lot of our clients uh, will have us pay their bills, monitor and, and 
measure their spending for them. In some cases, prepare, prepare full financials for them. And so I think there's a process around just having sort of an excellent excellent finance, financial management process that provides the client family with the information they need to make decisions as frequently as they need to make those decisions. So I have some clients who want to see their spending weekly. I have some clients who don't want to see it, but once a year. Periodically, we want them to see a snapshot of their net worth. We want to talk them through how that's changed, um, what decisions they need to make. So investments, financial management, I would call another bucket sort of the legacy-related issues. So philanthropy and philanthropy support is another big area for our clients, as is trust and estate planning. So all of those things fit together. And then I think the last one is sort of the, what I would call loosely family learning. And family learning gets back to what we were talking about a little earlier in terms of leadership development within the family, skill building, preparing the next generation for what's coming their way. And so all of these services typically are delivered through a single team that's probably at its core three or four people. Client has a primary advisor. There's usually a junior advisor, in many cases, a portfolio advisor. And and then there's somebody that probably supports a lot of the day-to-day operational aspects of the engagement, money movement, trading, those kinds of things. And so Which that, I guess at, at the end of the day, like that's not necessarily that different from a lot of other advisory firms, at least from a team perspective. Like a lead advisor, a support advisor, operation support, and someone that ties in from the portfolio. I guess part of the distinction, though, is like how, how many clients does that does a team like that service and support? A team like that will serve about somewhere between 20 and 30 families, depending upon the complexity of the family. So I don't know exactly how that compares, but in addition to that core team, I think one of the major differences then becomes the the, the size and the breadth of the specialty services that surround that uh, surround the core team, but are internal to the firm. And so we have a fully functioning tax team. We do tax preparation. We do tax planning. That's you know twelve to fourteen people. We have a, a fully dedicated trust team with this with this uh, trust and estate attorneys and people that have experience in trust administration. And so each of of these specialty areas has a number of people that go very deep in terms of their technical knowledge and are involved with the core team in delivering those services uh, to the client families. And so you've literally got like CPAs on staff doing tax prep, attorneys on staff drafting documents? We do have CPAs on staff uh, preparing tax returns. Uh, because of the regulatory issues, we don't actually draft legal documents, uh, but we're typically very involved in the process of designing the plan, working with outside counsel uh, to execute the legal documents. We review them, and then and then again, we come back and make sure that the the execution of the documents and the, and what I call the care and feeding of all the entities is done over the long term. Okay, right the the. You know, the classic, like, yeah, I've done all my estate planning. Here's my, you know, here's my revocable living trust. Like, there's nothing titled in your revocable living trust, and you never signed the signature page. <laughs> so, this is not actually a valid trust. Exactly. And no beneficiary designations are changed. And it's all those things. So, so what is, what is engagement look like from a 
meeting perspective? Like how, how often do you meet with clients as just you're doing all the different stuff? I mean, you were talking about at one point, like some clients want weekly reports on their spending. Like, are you actually down to the point of having weekly meetings with some, some clients at these wealth levels or, or that at least is an automated report, but someone's got to produce it. Like what is the actual advisor client interaction? So that is somewhat in a state of flux. So maybe uh, sure. So we have like the the pre <laughs> pre pandemic answer and the post pandemic answer. So I guess let, what was the pre pandemic answer, and then I'm I'm also curious how that's changing in in a in a shutdown world. I think the pre pandemic answer is that contact with most clients is probably on a quarterly basis when it comes to formal face to face meetings with the team. Increasingly, we are, we are delivering reports to a secure portal. Uh, so the weekly spending reports, the, the monthly or quarterly investment performance reports, the net worth reports, uh, increasingly all of that information is being delivered to a secure portal with some notifications to the clients where they're there. Often those interim communications that are weekly spending, can I afford to do this? Those are, those are phone calls typically. The actual cadence of the meetings and the frequency of the meetings probably isn't that much from from much different from any other type of advisor relationship. If the engagement is more complex and we're actually doing things like facilitating formal family meetings where multiple generations are getting together for four to six hours and they're talking about long-term estate planning, they're talking about the operation of the family business then those, those kind of have a different cadence. Those typically are uh, two to four times a year, depending on the family. And they tend to be longer meetings. So it's not an hour or two, it's four to six hours. And that's all, that's all pre-pandemic. So then, so I'll come to post-pandemic in a moment, but I just want to understand like these like family meetings as much as two plus times a, a year. So what exactly is what, I guess, what is going on in those meetings and what is the firm's, like what is the advisor's role in, in those kinds of meetings? So the advisor's role is central to the process. The advisor's role is either a facilitator or actually is conducting the, the, what I would call the meat of the meeting. The content of a meeting like that can vary a lot depending on the family. So I've got a client family, there's, there's four members of the family. It's basically mother, father, and two daughters. At least that's, that's the group that's involved in these family meetings. The girls, the younger girls are married. And at this point, they don't include their spouses in these meetings. These meetings tend to be twice a year. And they cover everything from updates on, on the family business. This is still an active business family to discussions about the operation of their family foundation. Often we will make some decisions within that family meeting about, about giving from the foundation. They tend to do that as a family because of the magnitude of the dollars. And then there's, there's typically some sort of high-level financial update. We don't do that every meeting because it, it uh, loses its luster after a few. And we tend to just focus on changes. So we change, focus on how, some, how a particular transaction has done, how it's been completed, where it is in the execution process and things like that. 
So there's usually a learning component. There's often a philanthropy, compo philanthropy component. And in this case, there's a business component. And because the daughters in this case are in their early 30s, uh, they don't have a business background that would have necessarily prepared them to operate this business or to take a significant role in the business. A lot of what they're learning is simply business concepts, how the patriarch thought about the business, how we may actually pick a segment of the business and have somebody join us on the phone to talk about a segment of the business. So there's a, there's a lot of learning that goes along, along with it. It varies a lot based on the size of the family. An overall engagement with family, uh, with, with a client, I guess. So there's, I'm just sort of trying to put piece together interactions. Like you may have quarterly meetings with, I was going to call it like the primary client, but I guess it's not even fair, like the, the, the patriarch and matriarch or like the, the founding generation of, of, of wealth builders. You may have one or two other longer meetings with the uh, conducting family meetings that bring in other family members as well. Is that separate from meeting with the, you know, the founding wealth generation clients quarterly as well, or part of the quarterly meetings is sometimes their family meetings and sometimes it's just them? It can, it can be either way. So part of that is the preference of the family. If you have a bigger meeting that's, say, four hours long, it's possible to have segments of the meeting with different members of the family joining or different out, outside, different outside advisors joining. The family attorney may join for part of the meeting, but not the entire meeting. So it can, it can look different ways, but it's, it's all designed to meet the needs of the family and to make sure that they're getting the information like that on a regular basis. For to, to me, that regularity and consistency is part of what builds effectiveness. If we're doing if we're doing that kind of meeting and we're doing it once a year for two hours with the entire family and trying to cover the whole waterfront of issues, it's really hard to move the needle because there's so much about repetition and discussing, reviewing things that were discussed previously and adding to them. It's definitely an, an additive process. Is that sort of cover the full scope of what interactions look like, or like are there are there other meetings or events or stuff that may be happening for a, for a typical client uh, through a one-year cycle? I think if you look at a one-year cycle, that probably covers most of the interaction. There are always the day-to-day -day phone questions. There are always the day-to-day, -day, we're going to change the investment allocation. I need some cash, whatever it may be. And how often are those phone or email conversations coming up for you? I mean, is that like a something that happens like literally day to day or, or week to week. I mean, I think for a lot of us, like, Hey, once my retired clients kind of set up, like, yes, I'm available for phone calls or emails when you need me, but any particular client, if there's not stuff going on, might only reach out once or twice a year between meetings. So there's just not a lot of stuff going on. My, my impression is your level of interaction with clients is probably a lot more frequent than that. I think in most cases it is much more frequent than that. And that's simply because of the volume of things that a typical family is dealing with. It just requires that to maintain it and keep it going. Which means what you may, you may be having interactions with clients every month, every several times a month, every week, like how, how intense does it actually get? Weekly is probably the average, you know, some are monthly, but I think some are daily. A lot of it just depends on the, the, the time period 
uh, what issues are going on, but it, it's not unusual to have some type of weekly activity going on. Not that's a not unusual at all. Which is why you quickly come down to like a team. A team may only serve twenty or thirty families, so you got like you know ten to fifteen clients per advisor on a on an advisory team because you really might be spending one or more hours per client per week on an ongoing basis, not even just because the meetings rotate through, but just phone calls, emails, issues, stuff that's coming up, tying to all these different business and financial issues. Yes, absolutely. And I think we, we take on a lot of the responsibility for monitoring the, the tasks that need to be done. And I think we take on a lot of that responsibility for not only tracking them, but executing them. And I think that, you know, it just creates a lot of activity. So in that context as well, if I think about the work and activity that happens for for clients, how much of this, like how much is the client facing activity versus all the support and behind the scenes activity that happens as well? Like, is it you know, for every hour I'm in, I'm in with clients, I probably got two hours behind the scenes work or like four to six hours <laughs> behind the scenes monitoring and implementing work or, or even more than that. Like how, how intensive does the rest of the support work, the, you know, the shadow work? Get? It's, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure I've ever really thought of it exactly that way, but instinctively, I think it's the four to six hours or more. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to prepare for the conversations, decisions, and discussions that occur. So I think it's I think it's pretty intense behind the scenes. As we as we talk about the the just the depth of these relationships and the amount of stuff that's going on. So help us now understand the business model. Like how do you how do you charge and get paid? I'm I'm assuming we're not still in the proverbial like well I charge 1% of assets so since you have 37.4 million dollars let me pull out my calculator and calculate your fee. How do, how do fee schedules and charging work in this environment? So for, for what I would call the basic set of services, about two-thirds of our clients are on some type of asset-based fee. And about a third of them are on some sort of a fixed fee. That's very heavily dependent on services that are provided. And then there are specific services that go beyond that sort of base fee uh, that would be charged separately. Things like preparing an income tax return, things like serving as a corporate trustee. There's a, you know, there's a particular fee schedule that goes along with that. And then there are a variety, a handful of other services that, that bring that additional fee. But the, core, but the core service, which we try to wrap into, into a single fee, uh, is either fixed or an asset-based fee. We're trying to make that part simple, but it doesn't always come across that way or it doesn't always work that way. And so how does that I guess I'll start on the asset-based fee side first. Like, how does that fee schedule work? Is it just a flat percentage? Do you have a graduated fee schedule? Is it is it more cu- customer adapted than that? Uh, yes, <laughs> it's it's all of those things. I think I think by far the majority of the fees are a fixed percentage of all of the assets, rather than a graduated scale. Uh, we've just found over the years that that's simpler and easier for people to understand. And because we're typically dealing with a more significant relationship, it, it just avoids a lot of the issues that go along with a different type of fee schedule. Um, fixed fee clients tend to be clients that are heavily 
focused on accounting and financial reporting and things like that that are historically more fixed fee kinds of services in other, from, other, from other outside firms. So, so there is still kind of a dynamic like more investment-oriented clients are on an AUM basis, more accounting and financial reporting clients are on a fixed fee basis? That there is a correlation there, no question. Okay. And so what is a typical, if they're on the AUM side, what is a, a typical fee schedule, I guess like fee rate come out to be? I just have no context for what a, a typical AUM fee is. Like, is this a, still a 1% fee because your services are, are in depth, even for a significant worth? Is it a, a half a percent? Is it a quarter of a percent? Like, what is a, what does a typical AUM fee look like in this, in this type of clientele? I think it hovers around a half a percent. Significantly larger relationships could be lower than that and smaller could be higher, but that's that's pretty close. Okay. Okay. And so just as I, I think about this in in real dollar terms, you know, if if I've got a client who's got a uh, a thirty million dollar portfolio, I mean you'd be you may be talking about a client that has a $150,000 advisory fee to the firm. Fixed fee clients still in similar domain or tends to be smaller because it may be a more limited scope relationship if they're not doing investment related stuff and it's solely on the accounting and financial reporting side or is that not necessarily true? So I think the fees would hover in that same dollar range. Uh, I think the 100000 a year plus would still be applicable for most of those clients. I think yeah, it just depends a lot on the mix of services and so on, but it's it's a it's a similar ballpark. So just help me understand, like how do, how's the conversation go when you're trying to justify a hundred and fifty thousand dollar advice fee? Like I get on the one hand, you when when your net worth is seventy five million dollars, like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, maybe doesn't sound like as big of a number to them as it does to some others, but like that's a that's a hefty fee. I'm sure there are a couple of people listening who are like, I am willing to fall on my sword and take Richard's clients for only $100,000 a year per client. Like, what is, how do you have that fee conversation to, to explain and, and, and justify just fees that add up at that dollar? Well, I think, I think if you put the fees out there without the rest of the equation, it's easy to come to that conclusion. Or to ask that question, I think that when you start looking at the actual work that goes into the into the relationship, it casts it in a whole different light. If you if you go through the list of services and you talk about you know a, if you're back to our earlier uh, discussion, if I'm spending an hour with my client and there's four to six hours of work to be done outside of that, you know maybe maybe four to six is actually on the low end. the the the, the explanation really is much more about the work than it is about the fee. Because if you, you, you took, all, took those fees and you looked at them on an hourly basis, you looked at them on um, a competitive market basis, looking at outside firms that do similar services, I don't think you would say those fees are excessive. And honestly, when, when uh, we have conversations about fees, it's much more, much more about the work that's being done and much less about the fees themselves. Um, I, I just don't, I think most people conclude that they're getting a lot of value. Um, we don't get a lot of feedback uh, that's different from that. 
Because at some point you just start adding up the sheer number of hours of work it takes across all the different team, across all the different stuff. And for clients at this level, like that work's got to get outsourced somewhere. Like they're running a business and doing whatever else they're doing. Like they're, they're not going to be doing the hundreds of hours of work that it takes to, to support the complexity issues that are in their lives. So it, it's going to quickly get down to, well, like I, I can hire a person, right, for $150,000. Like I, I could literally hire a, a CFP to do my stuff, but they may not necessarily have the breadth of all the different areas of expertise because you're dealing with philanthropy and trusts and estates and legacy issues and 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 the daily or monthly cash flow financial management issues. And, and you know, you don't necessarily want to have to train them on that. Right. So if if I'm a typical client family, I could go out and hire some number of other advisors and piecemeal the work and give part of it to CPA, part of it to an investment advisor, part of it to an estate attorney, whatever the the mix might be. If you look at the cost of doing that, that's certainly an option, uh, but there's a lot of information that has to be exchanged and handed off and things that have to be coordinated and executed. And so there's a lot of value in having more of those things under one roof and and together, so that all the information's in one place, all the executions in one place. You have one phone call to make instead of some number. The the other option for many of the families, as they become larger, is to, is to have their own family office, a single family office, in effect. And that becomes very much a decision about hiring somebody and actually building a lot of the infrastructure themselves. Some families will choose to do that, but as you know, a business like that is. You know, it's it's complicated to put all the infrastructure in place and manage the people and have give all of them careers and create and deal with the complexity of the regulatory issues and so on. And and I guess that becomes part of the part of the the dynamic of how far up the net worth scale you go before that math does tend to shift. Right. I, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking these numbers like, okay, by the time I get to a hundred million dollar client, even if maybe they're getting a lower fee schedule break point, like now maybe they're paying three or four hundred thousand dollars. And like, well, well, geez, now I could hire like two or three people in my in my office if I've got two hundred and fifty million dollars. Now like almost any percentage starts adding up. I could hire you easily hire three, four, five people or more in my office. And like is is there some crossover you tend to find at the upper end where the dollars add up enough that the clients just end up saying, you know what, like I I think I'm just going to hire my own half dozen people. It's actually still more cost effective than than paying a firm externally. So, so I think what happens there, Michael, is when you go through that thought process. I think there is a point. You know, if you're if you're a 500 million dollar family or up, I think the economics can make sense. But you but you still have that threshold question of Do I want to be the one to run this? How do I make sure that I've got all of the various technical areas of expertise covered in sufficient depth and breadth for what my family needs? It's, you know, you got to have office space, you got to have technology, you got to have do compliance, you have all those same things that you're doing and that you're not able to leverage off the cost of sharing the platform effectively. And I guess, again, you have... If you were focused enough as a business owner to build a business worth half a billion dollars, you you probably didn't do it by sweating the last bit of minutia on who you're hiring, right? I, I, about about 
your personal financial also, right? Like I'm just imagine like, uh, you know, if I've got a half a billion dollars and this is my pain point, like is saving a hundred thousand dollars by opening up your own personal family office versus hiring an external firm to do it that already has the infrastructure and the focus. Like, is that really where you want to save a hundred thousand dollars? Like I get it. hundred thousand dollars, a lot of money, but like after the first half billion, I suspect you have more impact by spending your time somewhere else. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And I think that what happens when you work with a, for example, a multifamily office, um, one of the things that I have found that's really unique about that platform is the fact that you bring a lot of different expertise to the table, whether they're under your roof or not. So if, if a client comes to me and they're focused, you know, think of some fairly esoteric and relatively uncommon things like I'm dealing with an aircraft related issue or I'm dealing with something very, very specialized in the trust world, whether it's addiction or it's, you know, there are those kinds of things where having that that network built of people that you trust, you know that you can you have a go-to team for things like that, there's some value. There's a lot of value that comes from that. If you're starting all that from scratch, you know, every time the, the question comes up for the first time, you're starting at scratch and you've got to go out and research those things. And right. find like out- I've mm-hmm. I've done the I've done the conversation with my clients. Do you buy or lease your car? I would be still working from scratch if I had to help my client figure out do you buy or lease your aircraft. Right. It's a very some of these issues are very, very unique. No question about it. Whereas I would imagine you actually have done that analysis, that calculation more more than once for clients over the years to show them like here's the buy versus lease decision on your on your aircraft. More than once. <laughs> so so help me understand the like the organizational structure. You had mentioned earlier that the firms actually organize under a bank holding company structure, whereas I, I think most of us are used to like I'm I'm an RAA or I work under a broker dealer. So what is what does bank holding company structure mean and like what what's held in the bank holding company as as part of this structure? So First of all, the reason that we are organized the way we are, we started as a single family office for the founding family. And, founding, and is that the Tolleson family because the, the Tolleson, Tolleson wealth? Mm-hmm. Okay. And the Tolleson family is several generations in as a banking family. And so they know the banking business. When they opened to the single family office, they they had the experience they had was that they had some difficulty finding a bank that would really do the kinds of things that they wanted a bank to do and do them well. A lot of the major banks are focused on corporate banking and things like that and not at all on private banking. So they they sort of backed into the banking business and added that after the family office was up and running and then ultimately added corporate trustee services and other things. So having the bank it's you know it's a, it's it's a very simple private bank but it's uh, we don't do a lot of the things that most big banks do. Corporate lending is an example. Um, We focus on the needs of the families that we serve. And so having that bank really was the reason that we we created or went into this uh, bank holding company structure. So what do you do? do? Like, what does it mean to have a a private bank, like literally a private (laughs) bank for your, for your private wealth management clients? Like what, what does it do for them or what do you do with a private bank under your umbrella? It's a great service. 
the bank is is actually a pretty simple operation. It is it is a pure taking deposits and making loans. And so we we don't do a lot of the more esoteric things that a lot of the big banks do, but we focus on those core things that clients actually need. They need somebody to take deposits and process checks and get them cash and uh, all those kind of things. And then when they need a loan, we can make them a loan and we can, the decision makers are all in our offices. So if somebody needs to structure a loan in a more flexible way or a payment schedule in a more flexible way, we have the ability to make those decisions uh, within our firm. And so it, it turns out to be a very high, high service level and a very flexible way to bank and meet the needs of most individuals uh, that are members of the families that we serve. And, and by the way, you, you don't have to be a multifamily office client to use the bank at all, but it turns out to be a very popular service. It's great. And it allows us to coordinate a lot of the work we're doing under one roof. So we've, if a client needs that loan, we've probably got their net worth information. We've got all their financial data in-house already. And so this is like, you said not necessarily corporate lending. So this is like, I want to borrow money to buy a house, to buy a second house, to invest in real estate, I guess to like finance my airplane, like that. The those kind those kinds of loans, not necessarily the like I need to borrow fifty million dollars to expand my business because that would be corporate lending somewhere else. Correct. You you got it. Those are exactly the types of things we do. Okay. And and the idea being just look. We have a private bank. This is literally all they do when they're built for our clients. Like, yes, you can go to uh, JP Morgan Chase or pick your large national bank, but you know, you're going to go through their underwriting process and get underwriter of the week, or you can work with us and we know you, we know exactly what your family situation is. We have all of your financials and details and we value you as a client. So we can probably give you better terms and more flexible and it'll be done quickly. And you don't have to get aggravated at a banker who doesn't know who you are. You nailed it. And so do you, do you also still just have to compete on, on terms? Like, is this a high yield deposit bank and you've still got deposit, you know, yield pressure and, and, you know, we have to compete on borrowing rates, but you know, Hey, our underwriting process is a little simpler since we know our clients so we can compete on rates. Like, is there, is there a rate aspect to this as well? Or is this in practice, mostly a servicing and ease and convenience and maybe customization of we can just make loan terms for you because we know the banker. It's our employee. So so everything that we do has a competitive element to it, uh, but there's also a service element. And some people, you know, if it costs them a quarter of a percent more on a loan and they're able to close it in five days versus 35 days with no aggravation, then, you know, they're, clients make those judgments. And so there's, there is a service element to it uh, that goes beyond just the pricing, but, but the pricing's always there. You're not, it's not like a loan is going to, is going to carry a rate that's a full percent higher than any other option because, because that just wouldn't make any sense. So it's a little, but you may end out a similar or a tiny slice higher, but you can you can justify that on convenience and the and the rest, and and it consolidates that client relationship under one roof. Yes, and the only thing I'd add to that is to say that um, it's not always higher cost. In some cases, it's a lower cost because the type of lending that we do, we you know, in a mortgage loan world, you don't find a lot of lenders out there that will do asset based lending. You know, they're all focused on your your paycheck and your credit rating and all those things. 
And so if you're self-employed and you have a variable stream of income, it may be hard to get a loan. In cases like that, where some of the unique things we deal with, it, it might it might well be less expensive and easier. Right. Uh, so so the you know the the classic entrepreneur that has all of their net worth tied up in a business hard to value, not liquid. You look at their tax returns and their income fluctuates wildly and the bank sees like, oh, high risk. We we can barely underwrite this person. You're looking at saying like, yeah, this guy runs his business incredibly well, has been doing it for 20 years, is worth $200 million. Like you can loan him the money for the house. It's going to be okay. <laughs> we, know, we know he's good for it because we live in his family business. And so I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering a little bit just sort of the mechanics of the of the of the banking end like do you end like does the bank end out with sort of concentrated loan risk because there's only so many clients that you can lend to in this dynamic like do you guys actually have to worry about the the diversification of the loans when you're doing large ultra high net worth loans to a limited number of ultra high net worth clients or is the points there they're so financially stable you're just not going to really face any defaults that you're worried about no, I think you still have to run the bank and run it well. And concentrations are always an issue in banking. So you would monitor those same kinds of things uh, that you would in any institution. Okay. And, and, and I guess from the flip side, like what happens when it's an existing client and they really want a crazy loan and you have to decline them? It does happen. And, and we typically in a situation like that, talk through, talk through with them the reasoning for our decision. But it happens. I don't. I don't think we necessarily give anybody. We don't want to give anybody the impression that we'll take any kind of loan on any terms and so on. We're typically looking for safe loans, low risk loans, and we'll do a lot of things to accommodate terms. But we certainly don't want to make any bad loans. Which I guess to some extent becomes a like, look, we just can't do that loan for you here. Like I'm not saying you're not worth it. Just like. You have to call the other bank for that one. Like we do these types of loans and you don't quite fit our our loan parameters, right? Is that sort of the out? Like I'm not rejecting you. I'm just telling you we're going to help you find a different bank to do that loan. I think that's exactly right. We, we try to be in, in many things really clear about what we do. But as you know, being really clear about what you do often means being even clearer about what you don't do. And so that's... That's the way we think about it. We are very specific about the, the areas we can have flexibility, but when it comes to credit risk or things like that, that we think go beyond our ability to underwrite or whatever it might be, then we're pretty. We're, we try to be completely upfront about things like that. So, Richard, help me understand like overall structure now. So, the the bank holding company kind of holds the private bank, but where does the like where does the wealth management advising stuff happen? Like, do you actually do that? Under the private bank, is there a trust company? Like, is there still an RIA in the mix here somewhere? Like just structurally, when you're doing this sort of multifamily office environment, like, are there other entities under the umbrella? How does this actually work? Yeah. So in our case, the bank holding company is at the top of the structure. And the bank holding company owns the bank itself as a subsidiary. And then a, a brother sister subsidiary is the is the RIA, which is the entity in which the multifamily office operates. So the tr- then the trust powers the trust powers come to us as uh, within the bank. So the trust function itself is a department within the bank. Operationally, all those pieces run very very integrated. 
but that that's how they fit together organizationally. Okay, and so it's it's basically those two entities. Like in practice, there's a bank holding company. It owns a bank that does banking and trust, and then it owns an RIA that does investment management because you've got actual portfolio stuff and sort of the broader advising and family dynamics that go with it. Yes, that's exactly the way it okay. operates. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and so under that under that structure, like we haven't really talked much about just investing itself. Like, what is what does investment management look like for a client that has thirty million dollars? And and like, what do you do in house versus externally versus we find it for you versus we manage it? Like, how does that come together in a in a firm like yours? We are the the core advisory team. The advisors that we talked about earlier are supported by a 10-person investment team. The investment team does all of the uh, strategy research, the manager research and due diligence, the ongoing monitoring, and so on. A typical client portfolio at that level probably doesn't look that different than a portfolio in most other places. Uh, We have clients who who, uh, execute a a full portfolio that has Equity strategies, fixed income strategies, uh, some specialty strategies. Probably the biggest difference in the portfolio itself is the existence and probably the degree of private equity you might see in a in a larger portfolio, because they can uh, they can withstand some of the illiquidity that goes along with private equity investing. But we, from our perspective, we are a manager of managers. We're helping set strategy. We're choosing the. We're working with clients to choose the allocation, identify the goals, constraints. And then we pick outside managers for execution. We, the only exception to that is that internally we manage the municipal bond type portfolios. Uh, anything other than, than that strategy, we would, we would work with an outside manager. So what, what leads to the decision to be in that manager manager's model? Because I'm, I'm going to imagine at your size, like that was, that was a choice. Like you, you could go hire a bunch of people and do it internally and adjust your fees accordingly, or you could position yourselves as, as manager or managers. So what, like what leads you to, to do that, especially in a world where like you're, you're charging 0.5% of $30 million and not, not actually managing the money directly yourself, your manager of managing, which means there's another layer of fees for those folks to get paid. Like what, what leads to the decision to do that? I think it comes from the experiences that we've had over the years and the realization that even if we put together, uh, no matter what the team we put together internally, uh, that there would be areas of the market that we couldn't cover well, there would be strategies that we wouldn't understand as or execute as well. And so I think it's just the benefit of, of the experiences we've had over the years in looking at those in looking at managers that do very specialized things in very specialized parts of the market. I think that has worked for us very well. We try to be what I would refer to as implementation agnostic. If we have clients who want to go very high or very low cost, very high transparency, tax efficient portfolios, any of those kinds of things, we have the ability you know, to execute an ETF-based portfolio or a mutual fund portfolio or really any kind of portfolio that the client prefers. So we, we have a variety of ways that we can go about that execution or implementation of the portfolio. And so, in the truest sense, like, look, you you know, you want us to build you a low uh, a low cost ETF portfolio. We'll put our resources together to do that. You and you want us to put together something with a bunch of private equity opportunities because you think there's still opportunities to do even more there. 
we'll go do the due diligence work and put that portfolio together to for you. Like you pay us our you pay us our dollars, we do the research and design and create the portfolio allocations and find the stuff to implement. You know, you pay us for that and then yeah, the underlying ETF will get its ETF fee, the underlying private equity manager will get their private equity manager fee, but like you pay them for their part, you pay us for our part. Now, you did mention like we we choose specialized managers and specialized segments of the market. So I I it sounds to me like the the types of managers you use when you talk about being manager of managers may be different than what other advisors use. You're not necessarily pulling or, or maybe you are like pulling from a list of managers at Schwab or Fidelity or like pulling from a list of managers from InvestNet. What do what do specialized managers mean for you and where do you find them? And, and actually, how do you create those portfolios? So th- to me, the specialized managers, an example would be a strategy. We're, we're investing in a strategy and have for a while that involves, uh, that focuses on community banks and the fact that you know, mergers will occur over some period of time. Uh, there are some strategies in the fixed income arena so in a high yield munici- in a high yield portfolio, we're typically more focused on high yield municipals than we are traditional high yield, because because of where the market is and the types of things that have happened. We try to look for managers that are unique. They have a unique strategy, or their ability to execute is unique. We are able, in many cases, to access managers that other firms might not have access to, uh, because we have typically clients who are investing larger amounts. Uh, so we try to mar- larger amounts and less in the industry's terms, hot money. Like I'm going to assume when sh- short of someone having poor performance, where just your due diligence process strikes them out, you're, you don't exactly have the clients that, uh, that are hot swapping around on funds. Like if only cause they got, they got other things to do with their time and money, like building their business. So they're, they're not trading stuff, which means you're stable money for some specialty managers as well. Absolutely. We we source our managers ourselves, and so this this team of ten people on the investment team, they travel a lot. They have a lot of meetings. They talk with a lot of managers. Uh, often we're getting ideas from clients or from other family offices. Uh, so there's this informal network. Sometimes it'll be from other institutional investors, where one of our one of our senior management sits on the sits on the investment committee of a pension or an endowment or whatever it might be. But we have a pretty uh, we have a pretty robust process of, of identifying and vetting those managers ourselves, and and we like that. We like we like the fact that we are doing that work and doing it ourselves. Interesting, but I, again, I think you make a a good point about the depth when you say like our investment team is traveling a lot. I presume literally do like on site due diligence. Like let's let's see how they actually manage the money and run there and and whether they run a tight ship because I'm literally going to show up and see how the ship is run. We do everything that we feel like we need to do. We'll do background checks, criminal checks. We'll, uh, we want to be in their offices on a regular schedule. Experience again tells us over and over again that it's not the same on the phone or even on a virtual due diligence call. You need to be in their offices and see what's around them and how the people are interacting. And you can tell a lot from that. So. So investment implementation for clients is kind of this manager of managers framework will help you figure out overall allocations and risk will will help you figure out even what style like are you a are you a low cost ETF kind of client or are you a you know high risk let's let's go for private equity home runs kind of client and 
just help them get to whatever it is that they want to pursue. Yes. And, so, and, I, and some of our clients will come to us with preferences to managers. They'll bring existing managers into the mix, which from our perspective is no problem at all. We'll go through and do, do whatever due diligence we feel like we need to do, but we're trying to, make the, trying to make the platform as open and flexible and transparent as we can for our clients. Ultimately, the common theme for all of it uh, to me as well is your, your clients kind of have a unique level of flexibility because when the, when the dollars are more than you need to, you know, to make retirement work and, and sort of afford your lifestyle, I guess you, you oddly get in a realm where like, I could make an equal case for the clients to be 100% fixed income or 100% private equity because they don't need the cash and they don't need the liquidity and they don't need the return, but they also, the return couldn't hurt. And like they, they could just literally go anywhere on the spectrum because our traditional, like, well, you need to invest for a certain level of risk in order to grow your portfolio to achieve your goals. Like that's not actually part of the discussion for your clients, or at least it's not framed that way. It's a very different conversation. And, and that particular part of the conversation is one that occurs regularly. If you don't have to take the risk, why should you? The reality is that most, most clients want to take more risk for some reason, whether it's to, uh, to add to the portfolio that ultimately goes to charity or whatever it might be. But it, it is a different conversation because you're often not talking about sufficiency. You're talking about what's optimal, what makes the most sense, and what will achieve the goals that you've articulated. And so what does the firm look like overall now? Like how many clients or assets or staff or revenue? Like, I don't know how you measure size since you know, you, you've got a, some hefty fixed fee clients. So I don't even know if AUM is the good measure for you, but how do you, how do you look at the size of the firm overall of what you're doing and how many you're reaching? So the size of the firm is, is, is overall, we serve about 180 families. That doesn't give you necessarily a good indication of actual number of family members. My largest family is about 80 people. Assets at the end of 19 were six, six and a half billion, something thereabouts. Obviously, that's changed today. We have about 180 people in total. So 180, I, 180 people, that's, that's not just advisors. Like that's investment team and operation staff and all the rest. It is. It's usually striking to people when you say that for the first time, when you're talking to a prospective client, they pick up on the fact that it's very people intense. But it is very people intense and it's more expensive way to do business because of all the other services we provide and the way we provide them. So can you give me at least a rough breakdown of just how like how those people break out in group? Is that like 10 of them are advisors, the other 170 are all the things that go on behind the scenes at a firm this size? Is like 50 of them are advisors? Like how how does the how does 180 people break out when you're supporting a hundred and like 180 families and six and a half billion dollars. So if we start at the 180 people, about 40 of those people are directly related to the bank. 10 of them are in trust, something like that. So that's 50. The number of advisors and the people on those core teams that support them is probably about 60. The rest of them will be in one of the specialty teams. Or we have obviously some corporate level folks, some IT and operations folks, compliance and all those things. So the, the core team itself is probably 60 people. Interesting. Interesting. And so like even in that context, like your 
particularly when you get out of the trust company and the bank and into the core base, 120 to 130 people of which upwards of half are either advisors or on specialty teams supporting advisory functions and and less than half are actually the financial operations compliance administration end, which I guess speaks to just, you know, very high net worth families. So again, you don't, for six and a half billion dollars, you don't have a ton of people relative to other advisory firms that might have a a thousand plus clients simply to get to a billion dollars or 2000 clients to get to a billion dollars. You're, you're at 180 clients across six and a half billion dollars plus other wealth held outside that isn't, isn't investable. So you're, you're, Staffing dynamics end up with lots of advisors relative to clients, right? You essentially have, on average, three families per advisory staff because of the level of depth, which I guess helps to explain why you end up averaging one hundred fifty thousand dollars of fees for clients. And that it's a very different. It's a very different right. business model. Yeah, it really is. So, as as you look at the business overall, like how do people come into this kind of business environment. I mean, I get it for you know someone in your position who's been doing this for twenty plus years and has learned how to connect with and relate to to these these types of clients. But I think even just for the average advisory firm, like how do I train someone to put them in front of my you know my A clients who have one or two million dollars for I call like average advisory firm? That's still a stressful and challenging team and people development dynamic. You live a world like how do I develop someone to put them in front of a seventy million dollar client? How how do you think about like team and talent development and and just get getting people up to speed to be able to do what you do at that level of of depth and complexity? Such a good question. So uh, you you obviously know all the dynamics of the industry and the people supporting the industry. A couple, probably five or six years ago, we ultimately concluded it was very, very difficult to hire experienced people that came to us with the set of skills and experiences that we really needed. And so our our focus has shifted over those years to hiring many more directly out of school, out of college, and training them. And so that means that we, we spend a lot of time and energy talking about how you develop those people, how you get them all of the areas of technical expertise you want and all of the other skills that they need, whether it's relationship management or having difficult conversations or leading a team internally. How do you build the culture that supports all that? Uh, I would say that we are very much a learning organization. Uh, We hired five years ago a chief talent and learning officer who does a lot of work internally on talent development, on training, on culture, culture uh, development and maintenance. It takes a lot of time and energy and it costs. And it's something we spend an enormous amount of time doing and trying to make sure that we do it well. It, it's, I won't tell you it's easy. It's not. I think it's hard. It takes a lot of time. The industry continues to change at a fairly rapid pace. Our, you know, I'm one of the older and more experienced advisors. We have a good group of younger advisors uh, that are coming along, but you've always got to be looking at that talent pipeline and making sure that you've got enough people coming along to support not only the growth itself, but the types of growth that you, that you're, uh, that you anticipate. And then, you know, hiring for some of the specialty teams, 
hiring members of a tax team or a trust team, very different in many cases, how you go about hiring and training those people. So it's a, it's a daunting thing to, to, to tackle. So what are you finding works, I guess, for either sourcing talent or vetting talent or, or developing talent? I mean, what's, what's actually working for you guys having tried and tested this? Hiring is always a challenge. Um, we do as much sort of what I would call behavioral interviewing as we can. We try to think about experience. What do you mean by behavioral interviewing? So interviewing people, not just for their technical background and their degrees and their experiences specifically, but asking them, focusing on specific types of behaviors that are important to us, and then asking them questions to, uh, to essentially elicit descriptions of situations they've been in and how they've handled them and what worked and what didn't. It's going much beyond just what I would call the resume uh, information and trying to get examples of teamwork, for example. Give me an example of a time that you worked as a successful member of the team. Tell me what your contribution was, what what you did well, what you didn't do well, what you would do differently next time. It's trying to dig into those things and really identify the specific traits that we're looking for, uh, for people that will succeed in our organization. And so does that become a kind of an anchor question, like giving an example of a time you blank with some some behavior or core value thing that you uh, that you want to see. Um, give me an example of teamwork. Give me an example of you know when you dealt with a difficult situation with a client who wasn't happy. Like what were they unhappy about? What did you do about it? Exactly. Those are very very common questions, and we try to do as much of that as we can. I think that really makes a difference. And um, we al- we also focus a lot of time and energy on building leadership behaviors internally. Creating and creating and supporting a culture that encourages people to be focused on learning, and I would say taking risks. It's interesting to me that so many of our younger folks seem to struggle with the idea of taking a risk because I might fail. And it's um, you know if you're running a business like this, you really need people to take smart risk. Not crazy risk, but you need them to take smart risks and try things, try try doing things different ways, and experiment with what works and what doesn't. Uh, without that, I think a, a firm like ours, it's very hard to grow and and be successful over the long haul. So, w- what do you do to try to build leadership behaviors internally? It's something we've spent a lot of time on. We do a, a whole host of things. So we try to encourage, we have some internal training that we offer ourselves. So it might be a series of lunch and learns. There might be some formal uh, training that occurs with people at different levels on skills, on communication skills, on how to have difficult conversations, on how to uh, be, a, how to lead through a change process, the kinds of things you might anticipate, all of that kind of stuff. So we do formal training. We do informal training. We try to have a lot of informal interactions where uh, I try to interact with some of the younger folks in the organization to give them the benefit of experiences and storytelling and things like that. Um, we do use some outside personality testing. We've used things like the DISC analysis as a great way for people to understand communication styles among the teams. We have had a series of leadership retreats over the years where sometimes a client comes in, sometimes other outside speakers come in and talk about leadership. We've had some Navy SEALs come in and talk about leadership from their perspective. So it's, it really is just a whole host of things that we do. 
And we're always looking at the lists and trying to figure out how to do it better and more effectively. And you're tending to hire at this point, like straight out of college? Like, do you go that young or you like to get people who've been for a few years and, and then bring them into your, into your environment? Our tendency recently has been to hire more directly out of college and to train them and to really work hard on training them because there, there are so few firms that operate the way we do that I don't, you know, having a couple of years of experience doesn't seem to necessarily help them in, in the way that we're looking for it. Right. And, and as you look at that development cycle, like how, how long do you envision it takes from like we hired a college student until like this person is going to productively be able to handle a, a, you know, a client that might have 50 plus million dollars? That's a really good question. The people that we promote to be that sort of junior advisors, they're anywhere from eight to 10 years to get to that point where they are uh, really handling a lot of the day-to-day client activities. Some will do it more quickly and others Others not, but some, it seems to be somewhere in that range. So like, I just, from the business end, like, how do you, how do you justify eight years into someone who then may get developed and decide they want to go out and hang their own shingle or do their own thing or go somewhere else? It's, it's always a challenge. It's always a challenge because there are lots of opportunities out there because the supply demand is what it is. Uh, there's a lot of demand for, for the people that do this kind of work um, and have this kind of training. And, you know, it's kind of ironic. The more, the more we spend on training and the better a job we do, the more attractive as candidates they are. So we've got, we figure we try to do a lot of things, not only to, to entice them to the organization, but to try to retain them long-term. And, and what do you find supports for, for retention? So you don't, you don't hire them, train them, and then have them leave. I think it's a lot of those same things. I think a lot of the things that we do to train and develop them uh, simultaneously work to retain them. And I think, I think a lot of it is the experience that they have and the challenge. Uh, the, clients that, the clients that we serve day to day are extremely interesting, very successful families, lots of interesting and challenging issues. We have to provide them with a long-term, with a, a valuable long-term career opportunity. So, you know, there's always an element of compensation there, whole hodgepodge of things. And then where does it fit in? I, I know you have historically had a lot of involvement in investment and wealth institutes, CPWA, Charter Private Wealth Advisor program as well. Where do you think about things like CFP certification or CPWA in the context of all, all like all the rest of what you're talking about? Because like, you know, CFP in particular, like, you know, I still view it as a good anchor designation for being a financial planner, but like we are not learning how to conduct multi-generational family meetings in, in CFP certification. Like you at least start getting into it a little bit with CPWA, but even CPWA still has a fairly heavy technical tilt to it of just all the technical stuff around how do you deal with ultra high net worth clients in terms of estate planning and retirement accounts and the rest. So how, how do you look at, I guess, like structured learning programs and, and involvement in something like CPWA versus what you do internally versus just call it like school of hard knocks reality. Like some things you're not really going to learn about how to handle a client until you manage to do it wrong and hopefully not blow up the relationship in the process and learn from it. 
I, th- I think that all the things that you, that you noted through that, I think the CFP program does a great job of providing a broad base uh, information and knowledge to somebody who's coming into our organization. So we support people not only getting the designation, but I think it's equally important that they go through the classes. We have a variety of classes uh, that are offered near, near our work location. And so we can, we give them that training. I was very involved in the creation of the CPWA and it, in the creation of the designation itself, it was very much driven by what you what you alluded to, which is the type of clients that we serve. Uh, we need we need a lot more depth in certain areas than in others, and it was intended to supplement that CFP training and knowledge. So we we actually use those things and and support them and support folks getting those designations as one of the parts of of getting them the technical depth that we need them to have. Um, we'll all, we're always looking at other programs as well, whether it's just one-off conferences or other things like that. I just, from my perspective, I try to, I try to encourage people to make sure that it is relevant to what we do. It's not only just the technical knowledge either. It's the, it's the exposure to other people, the learning they get from people that are in the classes with them. And as you know, that just, I think it just creates a great dynamic and a great learning process for people that are going through that development. Are there other, I guess, like programs or conferences or organizations that that you would highlight as as being helpful to learn this stuff? Because I know for a lot of advisors, even that want to go this direction, sort of the, I have trouble getting a job in a firm that does this because I don't have enough knowledge and experience, but I can't figure out where to go to get the knowledge and experience because everyone says it's experiential and there aren't very many conferences and programs for it. So for people who are looking for structured learning, because they don't live in this environment already, like it sounds like CPWA is one because you were in, involved with it, but are there other conferences or programs or organizations or, or designations that you look at as being helpful in trying to learn some of this stuff? So there are programs in some of the major universities uh, that are helpful. So uh, there's a, you know, there's several family business programs around the country that I think some are very, very good. The, the organizations that focus on this family office world the most, uh, the two that I would note would be the Family Office Exchange and then the Family Wealth Alliance, both out of Chicago. Uh, they offer membership programs, but they also offer uh, various types of development, whether it's webinars or other, other means of delivery. Um, they offer fairly regular conferences and serve as a resource and, and perhaps even in clearing houses for jobs, those kinds of things. Uh, both of them are very focused on this family office market. And so I think that's a good place to start. Including, I guess, if even, you know, join, get some of the education, get involved, and then check out the job boards if you're trying to figure out how to find a role. Absolutely. So so having done this now for you know, ne- nearly 20 years at, at, at Tolleson, what surprised you the most about trying to build and scale up a multifamily office business? living this model? I think what has surprised me the most, it seems like there's a surprise every day. It's, it's in so many ways rewarding. I thrive on challenges and learning new things and trying new things. And so I think it's, it's been amazing as an experience. Uh, The surprise if there is one probably is how hard some of the operational issues are. Uh, Because in a firm like ours, where we have we have this core advisory team and then we have a series of specialty teams. Uh, each one of them is looking for very different things, very different people, 
uh, the way they interact is sometimes different. Sometimes they're more introverted, sometimes they're more extroverted. Making all of that work together effectively is takes a lot of time, and in some cases, it's challenging. That's the hard work, is making all of it actually function together. In what's heavily a people dynamics issue, because you're a, you're a people business. Yeah, I constantly tell people that our secret sauce is collaboration. It's not really secret. It's, but it's, it's critical that you get it right. I mean, we all know stories about sort of surface level collaboration, but we require for the things that we're doing, we require very deep collaborative work from the very beginning of any client project. Um, When we're designing an estate plan, we need to have a tax person in there, a estate planning person there, maybe an investment person in the room. And we're trying to get the benefit of all of the different level areas of expertise and put all of that together to benefit our client families. And that's, it's just, it's a harder process than it sounds like to get really what I would refer to as this deep collaboration. What does a typical week look like for you at, at this point? So you have some management functions, you still have some client facing functions. Like what, a, what does a, a week in the life of Richard Joyner look like at this point? I would say, I would say on average, it looks something like, I probably divide it into thirds about a third of my time is directly involved with clients. I've never given that up, and I hope I never will have to give that up. The second third, I would say, is working with other teams and team members. And so one of, one of my personal fears was always that I had to give up client work to have a, a leadership role. And it hasn't turned out to be that way at all. It's really more a matter of redefining what that relationship is and my involvement is. So that second third is the chunk where I get involved with other teams. I consult with them when there are issues that arise. We're doing our best to make sure that we're bringing the best resources to a client and so on. And that final third I would call is just uh, sort of the corporate leadership aspect of it. Um, working, working on strategy and financials and you know, where we go next and that kind of thing. And yeah, it varies from week to week, but I think that's a, that's a pretty good overview. So you made an, uh, a note there of like, what for you was a concern about, do I need to give up clients in order to take on a leadership role? And, and I think as you put it, like finding that balance by changing the, the nature of the relationship that you have that you still hold on to. So can you just talk about that a little bit more? How, like, how have you found that balance? I feel like this is a, a challenge and a fear for a lot of advisors. Like, you know, I did this to work with clients. I want to make a bigger thing. I'm told I got to you know, focus on the leadership stuff and give up the client stuff. I don't really want to give up the client stuff. So like, how have you managed to find a balance to, to do both? So the way I describe it to most people that ask is that there are really two elements to it. The first element to me is deciding what you're not going to do. And I tell people constantly that I think the decision about what you're not going to do is the most important decision you make every day. And so I try not to let myself get sucked into things that don't require my involvement, that I don't really add much to, or or whatever it may be. So to me, that's a big, big, big first step. And I don't see enough people working on that kind of thing. The, the The second piece is that in situations where I was, for many years, the primary or the lead advisor, and I was bringing somebody in in the transition process, in each one of those, we spent a lot of time going through in considerable detail 
what my role would be vis-a-vis the rest of the team. So if I'm going to take on a lesser role, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm copied on every email exchange? Does it mean I see every trade that goes on? Does it mean I'm involved in every quarterly or important meeting with the client? We actually had to go through, in most cases, a pretty detailed process around that. Some of it was trial and error. And so for me, it was making sure that I could maintain a level of involvement or I had members of the team that were briefing me on what I needed to do to know on a regular basis to maintain the right level of involvement, not to be not to be micromanaging the team, but also not to be so uninvolved that it feels to the client like I'm just showing up. You know, there has to be some reason for me to be there that's substantive. So so where did you land on this? Like, do you still get every email CC'd on every email? Do you still look at every trade? Are you still in every client, every quarterly meeting with clients? So on the clients that I continue to serve, they're all a little bit different. So there's some shades of gray here, but I typically don't get involved in all the day-to-day. I don't see all the day-to-day emails. I don't see all the day-to-day trades. The team does that and the leader of the team is responsible for that. But I, but I do in most cases have regular briefings. And so for me, those regular briefings are about issues. They're about the status of the engagement or where are we on the estate planning process. They are, have we run into any problems? Do we have all the resources that we need? So we've tried to define the things that I think I need to know to continue to be effective. It's a little different from client to client, but it, it has worked extremely well. But it takes, it takes a lot of time and, and deliberate process around it. So how, how often do you do this client briefings structure? Like, is this a weekly meeting, a monthly meeting? Like how, because I know things move fast for some of your clients. <laughs> it, typically is, it typically is some kind of a, a weekly check-in. That could be somebody just breezing by my office door saying things are okay. Every few weeks or maybe once a month-ish, we probably need to have a sit down to actually talk about how the, how the client processes are moving and some of the more detailed pieces of that. So it's, it's a combination. It's a combination of things. So what was the, what was the low point for you on this career journey of, of building in the multifamily office world? You know, that's a good question. The low point actually probably was before that. You know, I practiced in I practiced in one of the big CPA firms for years, for over twenty years. And probably the lowest point was, you know, going through that thought process whether whether a big CPA firm can actually put together a business that works that essentially provides the services of multifamily office. It became very very hard to do, and I eventually I eventually moved into a to Tolleson where I've been for quite a while. So the so the low point was kind of that realization of, oh wait, maybe the place I've spent the past twenty years building my career isn't actually where I'm going to be in the long run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why did it take me twenty years to figure it out? <laughs> I'm still debating that. I don't know. Well, like, was there a particular moment or trigger point of just, oh, okay, this is going to have to change? <laughs> no, I think I think there were things going on in the CPA firm world that really precipitated it. Sarbanes-Oxley became law about the time I, I moved, and it was clear that they were not as focused on this set of services because of the potential for 
conflicts between their audit client and the executives and the senior people that ran and owned those businesses. So that probably was a precipitating factor. But once I saw what could be done in a sort of an independent firm like this, it was, uh, it's been pretty amazing. It's been an amazing run. It's, it, it, it's not always easy. So there are ups and there are downs just like there are with anything else. But on the whole, it's been amazing. So as you look back over having spent the past nearly 20 years building at Tolleson, like, is there anything you know now about like what it took to build this and make it work that you wish you could go back and tell you from 20 years ago when you were getting started in the independent channel? No doubt. I, I wouldn't have been as afraid of making this transition that I made into more of a leadership role. And I think that was a, that would have been a really important thing for me to know at the time. Cause I, it was just not something that I felt like I wanted to do because I, I felt like I was giving up too much. I certainly wish I had had more training and leadership skills. When I took this particular role that I'm in, it was 2013. I had to do a lot of learning about leading a bigger organization. And I, I don't know that there's a great way to learn that. You know, you do a lot of reading, you do a lot of study. You do a lot of trial and error. You try to talk to as many people that are good examples as you can talk to. I could have used that training a lot earlier in my career. Really could have. Any, any, I guess, like training or books or something that you read or went through that had a big impact in figuring that out for yourself? Um, I'd love to read anything by Patrick Lencioni, great leadership author. There's, there's one book called The, the Ideal Team Player. I think is absolutely wonderful. Uh, Stanley McChrystal wrote a book called Team of Teams. I thought it was a great book, but I'm constant. I'm a big reader, I'm, so I'm constantly reading new things about leadership. What's the the current reader sitting on the nightstand now? The current read is there's there's one called Traction that somebody gave me that I'm about to start by Gino Wickman. I haven't. I'm not familiar with it. And then there's one by. Michael Hyatt, forgotten the name, but it's sitting downstairs though. It's a vision, vision centered leadership or something like that. Okay. Oh, uh, a vision, vision driven leader. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. And I'm about two thirds of the way through that. And that's a really good book. I've really enjoyed that. Very cool. So for, for folks who are listening, this is episode 182. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 182, like we'll have links out some of those books. You don't have to like, stop and pull over and uh, write them down right now. We'll have, we'll have them for you so you can look them up later for like younger and newer advisors coming in that, that want to be in this family office, ultra high net worth environment or trying to figure out like how they get from where they are to there. Any advice that you would give about how you start going down this track? If this is where you want to take your career, if these are the kinds of clients you want to work with. I think you have to make an effort to learn more about the industry, about this particular segment of the industry. How do you do that? I think you go to some of the organizations like the Family Office Exchange we mentioned earlier. I think networking with people who are already in this part of the industry is extremely helpful. It is, it is different because it is so specialized and so focused on particular types of clients and their issues that I think doing that work and really learning from that kind of uh, from that kind of a process is probably the most critical thing. You have to find it. You have to go look for it. 
And and by definition, most single family offices, they, they try to keep a low profile. So it sometimes can be hard to find the organizations or the people that run them, but it's, but it's worth, it's worth the work. So that's, so that's either like, why do you go, uh, why you go to an organization like family office exchange? Cause they're, they're gathering there cause the organization's built for it. Or I guess it sounds like you're saying even just <laughs> try to be creative on the internet and figure out where single and multifamily offices are, wherever you are. And just what reach out to them and say, can I take you out to lunch and learn more about your, what you do? That's what I would do. I don't, I don't know of any other way to, to, uh, to sort of break into a group like that, because I don't think they're, I don't think the information is widespread or available easily. And so you do have to do some work. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the things I've always observed, just even the, the word success means different things to different people. Uh, sometimes it changes for us as we go through our lives. So, you know, as, as someone who's built their career in this and, and now leads a major multifamily office and, you know, it's kind of check the, the business success box, like how do you define success for yourself at this point? So I'm approaching 40 years in practice. And I can tell you at this, at this point in my career, the, the way I define success is much more about what I leave for others. Giving back to people in the industry and to the industry itself has always been important to me, but it's much more important now than it ever has been. So for me, that, that means creating an, an organization like Tolleson that is a sustainable organization that is full of people that are great leaders and with a passion for doing things right for their clients, motivated by the right things. Um, if I can leave behind that sort of a sustainable organization, I, I will feel great about what I've done. But, I, but it, it's more than just that. It's, it is giving back to the industry. It's continuing to build an industry that pays attention to the way they do things and creates those educational and learning opportunities for members of that community. I just, I feel more passionate about that than I ever have. Well, I love it. I love it. And certainly appreciate what you've given back for Investments Wealth Institute and, and CPWA, where, we, where we've crossed paths a few times over the years. And uh, and really just appreciate you joining us to share the story on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's been a, it's been a delight. Likewise. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.